0: Good morning and welcome. Uh, Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We have this great cathedral of truth in the book of Romans, and then you have these three chapters right in the middle. And oftentimes when you read the commentaries, they're not quite sure to do with it. Uh, I think it's in a very important teaching Reminding the church through all ages uh, that God will be faithful to his promises for the Jewish people. And I think that's important to realize because many in the church age, we're going to look at that um, a little bit closer, but many throughout the church age uh, have forgotten that. And as a result, there has been organized persecution from the church toward the Jewish people. That may sound strange to your ears, but there's a very long history of it in the church. And um, so we come here to chapter 11, uh, the final chapter of these uh, three chapters that are very critical and important uh, for us and for the church, and obviously the church in many respects has not really fully taken heed uh, to the warnings that we have here in this chapter uh, for the church, that we don't forget Israel thinking that, you know, God is just uh, saving us. But uh, he's reaching out, you know, beyond our borders. Um, and I think we have to be very careful uh, re- relative to the matter of, of, of different forms of bigotry uh, that the church has been guilty of over the ages. Different people, different people groups, different skin color. Um, we have to be very, very careful to make sure that we continue what? In the love of Christ. Uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 21. Paul writing says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And even so then, At this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. And if it is of works, there is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear uh, to this day. speaking here about not necessarily the entire nation, um, because we see that the church initially was very, very Jewish, and there has been Jews coming to Christ all the way through the church age. Uh, But David says, let their table, these are the rejectors. let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they, speaking of Israel, stumbled that they should fall? In other words, fall in a permanent sense? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to us Gentiles. For if their fall is the riches for the world, their failure uh, and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness or their return. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I may magnify my ministry, that if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, and again, that's not a permanent castaway. What will their acceptance be, their national acceptance be, but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, interesting there, a uh, wild bunch we are, we're grafted in among them and with them became partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So, he says, do not boast against the branches, the natural branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. For you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. So do not be haughty, but fear, and if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you. Lord, we praise you. We're so thankful, Lord, for the gift of salvation. But Lord, uh, we remember, Lord, as your, your word reminds us, that salvation has come through the Jewish race, through the Hebrew people. Lord, they're the root, and Lord, uh, the fruit, Lord, that they have borne, Lord, um, has touched our lives today, and we thank you, Lord, for the marvelous, redemptive work, Lord, you chose, Lord, the Jewish race, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, to come through. And Lord, uh, we're thankful for that, and we pray for them. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Lord, even as we pray for the Jewish people, we're reminded of even just a day ago, Lord, a synagogue being bombed, Lord, uh, out there in California, Lord, not too long ago, one just south of us in Pittsburgh. And Lord, we pray for your people. We pray for the Jewish people that they would come to know their Savior, their Messiah. Lord, uh, how you have wonderfully wrought, Lord, by by, uh, your mercy, Lord, toward us. You you set them aside as a nation, Lord, temporarily. And Lord, you have a, a glorious future plan for them. And Father, may we be reminded of that. Not just the anti-Semitism, Lord, that exists, but any bigotry. Lord, any wrong attitude that just for people that are different from us, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you as we know the Bible, Lord, we realize, Lord, we all come from the same parents. Lord, uh, you you have made, Lord, uh, and Lord, you don't even speak of races. You speak of the human race. We're all one race, Lord, we, we praise you for your faithfulness and for your goodness and for your love. Thank you for the revelation of truth that we have, Lord, in the scriptures. And so we commit this time to you. Lord, bless, I pray, this study. Lord, uh, give, it, uh, give it life, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, there have been people that have suffered uh, all throughout history, different people groups. But I don't think, and I, and I really believe that history testifies to this, that there hasn't been any one group of people that have suffered like the Jewish people. Uh, the different uh, pogroms, you know, the, the Holocaust, which is in more recent history. But as you go back, you know, throughout history, there has been a tremendous history of persecution, and we would call, we term it today, anti-Semitism, that has taken place uh, against the Jewish people. Uh, and the reason is, is if, and, and as a, there is a long history of it in the church, it uh, goes all the way back, all the way back to the very beginning, back to the year 200, is, is when it started. Uh, it was because it was believed that you know they because you know they failed and um, they put Christ on the, cru- on the cross, so therefore they're 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 the murderers of Christ and. And um, and so forth, and a lot of different uh, things have been said by different people. Some of the earliest church fathers have said things that have been uh, where the next generation kind of builds on this, and before you know it, you have um, you know you have uh, this 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 um, programmed uh, by the church uh, anti-Semitism uh, against God's people, and uh, how we need to be very careful of that you see the Old Testament, you see the New Testament periods. But, you know, at the root of it is Satan himself. Um, As we've said before when we're moving through uh, prophetic uh, uh, studies, uh, that that one of the reasons why Satan has tried to destroy the Jew is because uh, he knows the Bible, uh, interestingly, better than some Christians know the Bible. And, And the fact is he knows that there has to be the fulfillment of prophecy that includes the Jewish people and the Jewish race, and that's why he has tried to remove them. You know, off the face of the earth, thinking that somehow he can thwart prophecy, Uh, but uh, again, what a mistake! But it never has never stopped. You know, our great adversary, the enemy, from doing that. Um, And and here we have Paul teaching us here in chapter eleven that even in his day, and continuing to this day, uh, we see these things kind of happening. um, And uh, Paul's reminding us here, just giving us a very important reminder for the church, a church of all ages. Uh, that uh, when we move away from the Scriptures, uh, we need to be very careful because God has got a prophetic purpose, you know, for the Jew. Uh, The church right now is comprised of Jew and Gentile, uh, but there's a day coming when the church age is finished. Um, You know, Paul, we're going to talk about that next week as we conclude this chapter, uh, about the fullness of the Gentiles being come in. Uh, That's a conclusion of the church age, And so the the next, you know, period there is the day of Jacob's trouble when God is going to be revealing himself, dealing with a Christ-rejecting world, but also to bringing the nation back unto himself. And that will take place uh, actually very rapidly, and I believe even today the Lord is, you know, preparing, you know, that purpose. Um, I remember we were in Israel on a pastor's tour uh, probably 20 years ago, maybe 20-some years ago. Um, and we met um, Victor Smadja, who was a uh, uh, native-born Israeli, um, and he was a Messianic believer. He was a pastor. And he was talking, and uh, he was telling us, because we were a group of pastors there, he was telling us um, that uh, God was moving greatly in the nation of Israel um, among, you know, you know, among the Jewish people. Uh, he was saying at that time, he, he, I asked him, I said, well, how many do you think would be, uh, how many Jews do you think there would be in Israel at this time? He said at somewhere around 15,000. And again, this was about 20 years ago. And I think that number has probably tripled by now. Um, and God is preparing his people. He's getting them ready for a national revelation of himself. Now, let's pick it up here in verse 1. I say then, Paul, uh, he says, uh, has God cast away his people? And, of course, certainly not. And, again, but the point that Paul is making initially is that I'm proof of that. And, of course, the early church was thoroughly Jewish. And eventually, you know, as the gospel spread around the world, uh, the Jewish church became a minority. And then, you know, the Gentile church was basically the majority. Uh, He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, he's giving here an illustration through the prophet Elijah because Elijah thought, in a sense, uh, he was convinced that God was done with them. Because why? They were murdering his prophets. Um, they were destroying the things of God. They were rebelling against the things of God. And if you've ever read the, uh, the story of Elijah, it's a great story there in 1 Kings. Um, you know, he says a couple times, I alone am left. I used to call that the Elijah complex, that, um, you know, we're the, I'm the only one or we're the only ones. And I think you know, the church sometimes has kind of developed this Elijah complex, you know, that God has done with the Jewish people, and we're the only ones that he really cares about now. And the fact of the matter is it, it, very mistaken. And and those mistakes actually have been costly because it's created uh, a current of uh, anti-Semitism against, you know, the Jewish people. And of course, you know, they've they, uh, uh, or that is Elijah thinking here. But what does God say to him? What's the divine response we find in verse 4? God says, I've reserved 7,000 people. Uh, Just, you know, in other words, I've reserved 7,000 Elijah. You can't see them. You don't know who they are. You know, God basically oftentimes, he'll hide his people. Uh, He's always got his elect. He's always got his chosen remnant. In any age, God always has his remnant of people, and we see that here, and, and obviously it was larger than Elijah uh, thought it was. Uh, you know, 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal, that they were faithful to God in the midst of a very perverse and unfaithful generation. And so he says, uh, even at, even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. In other words, uh, because of grace, God's undeserved favor. Again, when the fact is, you know, we speak about election, God electing us, God choosing us. We've been talking about that, uh, uh, particularly when we're in chapter 9. And uh, uh, he, has, he has wonderfully chosen us, not because there's anything good in us. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're uh, you maybe a young believer, uh, you first get saved and you're kind of trying to figure out, why did God save me? Because, you know, we love ourselves so much, we think, you know, it just, you know, I'm just irresistible. Of course, that's why he saved me. And uh, then you come to find out that, uh, you know, he, he, it's, just, it's him. It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his kindness. And then he begins to reveal to us our true condition, really who we are. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's important, I think, for us to understand that, too. Uh, because it just throws us back more and more upon His mercy and upon His grace and upon His goodness and upon His nature, um, and I think as we get older in Christ, we realize we realize who we are. We realize the mess of our lives. We realize some you know sinful patterns that have gone on, you know, for for years, you know, within our life, and yet God has forgiven us time after time after time. Um, and it's just simply, it's, it's simply by his marvelous, wonderful, undeserved, unmerited favor, his grace, his goodness, and kindness. And he says, if by grace, and it is no longer works. Uh, otherwise, grace no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And so, you know, the thing I think that keeps us from Christ is human pride. Human pride doesn't want charity. Human pride doesn't want to realize that I have to humble myself and I have to turn to God for His grace and for His favor. And we realize, you know, even even as Christians, we can realize that there's that attitude in us uh, where we feel like we have to work. And you know, you have to do this for people. We have to do this for people all the time. And so we get ingrained in this thinking because people will favor us, they'll pat us on the back, they'll applaud us when we do what they want us to do. And we've earned it. We've worked for their approval. We've sort of, you know, and, and whether it's on the job or sometimes whether it's in personal relationships, uh, you know, when you do things, you know, to please people, uh, you'll get, you know, you'll get that pat on the back, you get that smile, uh, whatever the case may be. But that is not the case with God. It's just God's marvelous, wonderful grace uh, that he has given to us and why he's, he's ministered that to us. And again, that's, I think, you know, to be saved, we have to humble ourselves, and that's the rub. That's the rub we often find, you know, with, you know, within, you know, turning our life, committing our life to him. Um, that's not about you know, performance. It's not about, you know, this whole matter of I have to really do things that are just, you know, I have to, in order to earn the pleasure of God. Uh, yes, we do good works, you know, and I think that when our hearts are right, you know, we love doing those things because we love, because we love him. We do it out of love. But it's not a duty kind of thing where we're earning his smile or earning his favor kind of thing, like it is so often in human relationships. Now, verse 70 says, what then has Israel has not obtained what it seeks because it sought it in the wrong way with the wrong motive? Uh, But the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. And remember, we're told over there in chapter 9 that God can harden or blind those who persist in their rejection of truth. You know, God doesn't just, you know, in a, in a, you know, we talked about this when we were in chapter 9. Uh, you know, sometimes we've heard election and God's sovereignty in kind of a cold, hard way. But the fact is that God does, if somebody comes to, if somebody comes to him and he, he tells us this in the Bible, that if we come to him sincerely, he will in no wise cast us out. But what happens is, is that people persist in their unbelief, and their disobedience, and their rejection, their rebellion against God, and so God at a certain point that he'll ratify that. He'll ratify that in someone's particular life. Um, you know, he says, of Israel, he says, I've held out my hands all day long to a contrary people. And so when, you know, God would basically ratify someone's unbelief um, and their disobedience, it's because... Uh, they've rejected the truth. They've rejected the offer. Um, That's why, you know, the Bible says we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, aren't we? Uh, Because God wants to give everyone an opportunity to respond, you know, to that and to the gospel. So he says here, God has given them the spirit of stupor. Eyes that should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And verses 9 and 10 basically say the same thing. And again, this principle still stands today, Uh, you know, basically for those who hear Bible truth, that we need to believe it and act upon it. That's why as we study the Bible, uh, it's important that we be more than just some biblical student, Uh, that there needs to be a practical side, you know, to the fact of what we've learned and what God has spoken, you know, into our life and into our situation, that we need to act upon that. Uh, you know, it's interesting, too, that, you know, the, the, the Greek model of, of belief and the Hebrew model of, of, of belief are totally different. The Hebrew model uh, is basically acting upon what you believe. You know, the Greek or the Western model is basically just intellectually ascending to it. Oh, I believe it. I, I you know, I intellectually ascend to it. Well, there's a lot of people that just sort of believe that Jesus, you know, is Messiah, that he is God, but yet they never really act upon it in faith and receive him into their life. So it's very important that we, in a sense, choose that biblical model or the Hebrew model uh, that belief is really, you know, also to our acting upon it, not just an intellectual assent. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that sounds really good. Uh, but people, oftentimes, even believers, you know, never really act upon the truth that they've heard time after time as we read it, you know, within the scriptures. Very, very important. Now, in verse 11 here, he reminds us that their national unbelief is not permanent. It's not a permanent unbelief, that they're set aside for a brief time. And, uh, and God, in his foreknowledge, he saw it. Um, uh, he planned for it. Uh, he knew that there would be this, at least so far, 2,000 year interlude that we call the church age, where he is reaching out beyond Israel to all the nations of the world. He says, well, I say then, have they stumbled? that they should fall. In other words, have they, have they really stumbled in a permanent sense where God has finished with them? God has cast them off? Certainly not. But their fall is to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. You know, one of the things that you see here is an interesting principle, how God can redeem and use the failures of men. You ever see how in your own life God can use failures? You know, not that we want to always be fail- using you know sinning and using that as an excuse. Well, God's going to redeem my failures. No, we don't. We don't look at it like that. But the fact is, when you look at your background before you came to Christ, or, or maybe some mistake, some big mistake, you know, that took place in your life. Um, it it may have been just something that really you know uh, put a wound within your life. And as you, as you maybe turned back to the Lord and, and trusted Him uh, in a fresh new way, how God used that. And, and He does that. He redeems our failures. He uses those. Has anyone ever come up to you and um, you're, you're talking to somebody, who they're, an, they're an unbeliever, or maybe even a Christian. And all of a sudden, they're describing some event in their life, some painful thing in their life, and yet at the same time, too, they're describing something you went through. And so now you have an opportunity, what, to minister to them out of, what, out, out of what God has ministered to you. So God can take, he takes our failures, he takes our background, he takes all those things that sometimes you go through. Something. Well, why did I go through that? Well, you may have went through it in self-will. You, you may have gone through it in stupidity and disobedience. We all do those things. But you turn back to the Lord, and he can redeem it. That's the beautiful thing of our God. He can even take our mistakes, our setbacks, our moral failures, all those things, and he can redeem them, he can use them to bring people back to himself. So through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to us, Gentiles. Now if their fall is the riches for the world, you know, Paul speaks about that, uses monetary terms, um, You think about all that we have, we're talking about this just of of, of late as well, uh, that the Bible sometimes uses what comes to us spiritually and using a monetary term like riches or treasures. Um, You know, I was talking about uh, this, I think, uh, within the last couple weeks, uh, that what has come to to us through Jesus Christ uh, is basically the greatest transfer of spiritual wealth that this world has ever seen. What we need to make sure is that we're tapping into that, that we're utilizing the spiritual wealth and the blessings and all the good things that God has given to you, the spiritual gifts that God has given to you. You may have a special gift to just t- tell people about Christ. You may have an event. You don't. Everybody doesn't have to be Greg Laurie or Billy Graham or Luis Palau. You may have a special gift to just talk to people and lead them to Christ. I've seen people with that gift. Or you may have the gift of mercy. That, that when people are hurting, that you're able to come in there, you're able to comfort them. You're able to encourage them. You're able to restore them. The fact is that when Jesus Christ comes come into our life, that he's gifted us. By his spirit. He's enriched us. He's blessed us. And he wants to use us. He wants to use us to, to basically express himself. That's why we're called the body of Christ. He, he wants to use us to express who he is, to, to a to a, a dying world, even though initially and I don't know what your are you're, you're, you're Response was initially to the gospel, but I didn't want to hear it. I did not want to hear it. I was pushing back. But there came a point where I realized that I was pushing back against the most important thing that would ever take place in my life. And most people are like that. So don't be put off. Don't be put off by people just sort of pushing back. Not that we have to beat people in the head with the Bible, okay? Sometimes we do that. I've done that. Sometimes it works. <laughs> Some people are dense, okay? Uh, you have to use a Bible baseball bat on them. No, I don't really recommend that, but, uh, you know, but to share, you know, the truth and what God has, has done for you. And sometimes, you know, uh, you know, they've got a glazed look in their eyes. And, they don't know what you're talking about kind of a thing. But you know what? The truth has a way. You know, God has a wonderful way of taking his truth and just sort of ministering it. You know, um, you know Sometimes the truth is sort of like a pinprick. It's like a pinprick uh, you know, in, in darkness, a pinprick of light in darkness. But you know what? God has a wonderful way of just sort of using that to reach into a person's heart and life and giving them something uh, to think about. So if the riches of the, for, for if their fall, rather, is the riches of the world, uh, their failure uh, riches for the Gentiles, how much more uh, their fullness, or in other words, he's speaking, looking forward to their restoration and the fullness of, of the Jewish, you know, nation. Um, it's amazing, too. I've known some Jewish people, and uh, isn't it interesting how they have survived like any other group? Do you ever hear about Hittites today? Okay. What happened to the Amalekites? Okay. They're gone. But, but here God has protected and kept his people over the ages. And, and I've known some Jewish people. And, and sometimes they, they can be so passionate about, you know, about different things. But I love to see when a, when the, the Lord Jesus Christ gets a hold of one of those Jewish people. It's kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if you know any, any Jewish Christians, um, and maybe you have some. Maybe you have some people around your life that are Jewish. Um, maybe not realizing that you're the gospel to them. You're the one that God has chosen to communicate and example exemplify. The gospel of Jesus Christ. There was one story of a man whose uh, he he was just he was just affected by a house servant, a Jewish man, um, very intelligent, brilliant uh, professor, uh, just touched by a house servant who was a Christian, and she ended up leading him to Christ. And and God can take that work that he's wrought in your life, and he can use it to just stir a jealousy, a hunger, a thirst. You know, in that unbeliever, in that person that... And sometimes, you know, we think... I think sometimes it can just be in a practical way. Sometimes it's our, our lifestyle, how we serve people, how we treat people. Because remember there's something more than just you. This is bigger than you, and it's bigger than me. Because when you have the Holy Spirit of God in your life, you have a dynamic that the world does not have. And the dynamic and and the mind of the Spirit wants to work through you and me. We have to remember that, because it's so often we look in the mirror, it's like, I've got no gifts, you know. (laughs) We, We look at ourselves and, you know, we're, you know, we're just deplorable, you know, kind of a thing. But no, it's the grace of God in your life. It's the spirit of God in your life that he wants to use you and me. And sometimes, you know, he can do it in just a, a word. Now, in verse 13, uh, 14, well, kind of the rest of the chapter, I guess, here, he's speaking to us Gentiles because he knew what would happen uh, against the Hebrew nation throughout uh, history. He knew what would take place, and so what he's doing is he's trying to prep the church. He's trying to warn us how we're to think toward the Jewish people, how we're to handle them. The church didn't hear. Because there's a history. There's a long history of anti-Semitism from the church. I speak to you Gentiles, for as, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It started very early in the church. It started with Irenaeus, early church fathers, around two, uh, in the in the in basically the, you know, the second, second and third century there, Uh, started with individuals like Arrhenius, Origen, Tertullian, uh, John Sostostrum. He, as a matter of fact, uh, he's known as one of the great early church fathers. Uh, He had eight sermons, eight diatribes uh, against the Jews. Um, Ambrose, you know, when I was a Catholic, we had St. Ambrose. He actually burned a synagogue down. And uh, very, very interesting. I have some... Um, things I want to share here with you. Um, This replacement theology, or called fulfillment theology, um, it basically started very early on in the church, um, the the universal church, which became the Catholic church, also continued in uh, some of the Reformation churches as well, this whole replacement theology. Um, But by the time the the Reformation came along, it had been basically about 1,500 years already in effect. And uh, I have a book that I've been reading lately uh, called The Legacy of Hatred. It's by a Jewish Christian, and um, he uh, has a professorship in uh, Hebrew studies. Uh, You know, it's interesting, too, that... uh, after Constantine in 325, that um, Christianity became the state religion, and so at that point, some of the persecution, anti-Semitism became state-sponsored, government-sponsored. Uh, but again, the church at that point was, at that point, really got married, you know, to the government and to the world at that particular point because Constantine um, went into a battle one time and. And uh, he saw a vision that said, go into, go into battle under the sign of the cross. And uh, and as a result, going into the battle, winning the battle very handily, uh, that uh, supposedly was what led up to his conversion experience. Uh, so, so at that point, uh, um, in the Roman Empire, there was no more persecution, well, horrible persecution before that period. But as that, as that period came along, all of a sudden the church was married basically to the government. Um, and so the... the Persecution against anything un, un-Christian uh, was, was state-sponsored. Uh, <clears throat> Jews were made to denunciate their Jewish heritage if they became a Christian. Um, they were not to even eat with their Jewish families if, they were, if Jews had basically uh, um, been converted to Christianity. They had to renounce you know, everything. Uh, John Christostrum basically said Jews were murderers. Worse than wild beasts. Uh, their synagogue is the only brothel. He even called their synagogues brothels. And again, this is the church father. And so this leads us all the way up to Luther. And you know, I wanna, one thing I want to say about Luther, Luther was a man that God used tremendously in the Reformation period. And even early on in the ministry of Luther, he is favorable toward the Jewish people. But he had this background. He had this background of anti-Semitism that existed within the Catholic Church, and Luther had been a Catholic monk. Um, And at one point, let me just read this to you, Luther appeared to be a fresh breath of air in the midst of a very dismal situation of persecution that had been going on for centuries. Uh, Remember even some of the uh, Crusades. Some of the Crusades... Uh, were just basically nothing but going, as the Crusaders got to Jerusalem, just murdering everybody, man, woman, and child. And uh, that's why the only favorable, uh, and again, if you were a Catholic, you remember St. Bernard. Well, Bernard of Clairvoy was the only one who was ever really favorable toward the Jewish people because he was told to write a prayer for the next crusade. Um, in twelve hundred or something, and so uh, he wrote a prayer, "Remind you the Crusaders they were not to be going and murdering people and um, but Luther here initially uh, he had a high regard for the Jewish people because he expected them to convert in mass uh, once they were presented with a Christian message free from papal paganism, and in his treatise. Uh, uh, quote, that Jesus Christ was born a Jew, end quote, the, great, the German reformer demonstrated that Jesus Christ was a Jew, born of the seed of Abraham, and, per, and, and provided a sa- sad commentary on the medieval church's treatment of Jewish people. He wrote, if I had been a Jew, Luther wrote this, if I had been a Jew and had seen such dolts and blockheads govern and teach the Christian faith, I would have sooner become a hog than a Christian, <laughs> end quote. That was Luther. And, uh, and at this time, he took a firm stand against the mistreatment of Jews and advocated a new relationship with them. Uh, and Luther, as if you know anything about Luther's history, uh, he was very key um, in the Reformation, really a leader in Europe, but particularly in Germany. Um, and one of the ways that he really that he helped birth the Reformation, he was always writing. He was always putting out these little pamphlets, and they called them tracts and pamphlets, uh, about what the church was doing wrong, and a lot of the goofy things the church was doing wrong is they were elevating relics and artifacts, you know, almost putting, putting them on a, you know, on a pedestal that if you had this artifact, sort of like it was like a lucky charm uh, kind of a thing. And these artifacts and, 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 and relics and all this stuff was, was being sold for a lot of money. Um, and the indulgences that were being sold... Uh, in other words, that people could sin and they could get an indulgence. And so as a Catholic priest, he spoke out against these things. Um, so here's what he writes in one of his pamphlets regarding the Jews. Therefore, I would request and advise that one deal gently with them, the Jews, and instruct them from Scripture. And then some of them may, conc- may come along. Instead of this, uh, we are trying only to drive them by force, slandering them, accusing them of having Christian blood, um, on their hands. Um, Again, when we forbid them to labor and do business, uh, and that was, again, part of the persecution was driving them out of your communities, not giving them jobs, not letting them in business and and that sort of thing. By Luther's time, this was already very prevalent activity toward the Jewish people. he says, uh, again, when we forbid that to labor and to do business have any f- human fellowship with us, thereby forcing them uh, into usury, how is, it, how is that supposed to do them any good? If we really want to help them, we must be guided in our dealings with them, not by papal law, because again, the papacy put out a lot of these bulls and stuff like that's what they would call them. I'm not cursing here, Okay. Um, there would be edicts and so forth against the Jewish people that wherever they were in the Roman Empire at the time, they were to be treated in such a way. So here he's speaking about these papal laws. He says, But by the law of Christian love, we must receive them cordially, permit them to trade and work with us, and hear our Christian teaching, and witness our Christian life. If some of them should prove stiff-necked, what of it? After all, we ourselves are, are not all good Christians either. And so uh, that was right. That was, that was a, and as a matter of fact, there were many Jews at the time thinking they looked at that Luther in sort of a Messianic kind of way because it was so different than anything anybody had ever taught thus far um, to the Jewish uh, communities throughout uh, Germany and Europe. Let's see. <clears throat> it says, though, at last, Luther became irritated when Jewish people continued to resist conversion. In 1526, he complained of the Jews' stubbornness, and by the 1530s, he was presenting the common medieval stereotypes uh, accorded to the Jews. Uh, In conversations, in some of his stuff called table talks, he caricatured Jews as stiff-necked, iron-hearted, and stubborn as the devil. In 1543, at the end of his life, he wrote three derogatory treatises against Jews, uh, which anti-Semites often uh, would quote for the next 400 years. So horrible was his statements that Ju- Julius Streicher, who was Hitler's uh, one of Hitler's editors in his propaganda machine, um, in a publication called Der Stormer, cited Luther at his Nuremberg trial to justify his actions. There were the war trials after... Um, World War II in Germany, trying um, all the criminals for what they had done to the Jewish people. One of these treatises is is referred to as On the Jews and Their Lies. In it, Luther called the Jews venomous, bitter worms, and disgusting vermin. He asserted that they were all thieves and should be deported to Palestine he made numerous suggestions concerning treatment of the Jewish people throughout the treatise, including these. And here's a quote uh, from a tract that uh, Luther wrote. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? I shall give you my sincere advice. First to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover them with dirt, whatever will not burn so that no man will ever see a stone or a cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom. Second, I advise that their houses be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings, in which are such idolatry lies, cursing and blasphemy are taught, be taken from them, of be taken from them. And fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach thenceforth of pain, of loss, of life, and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished for the Jews. Can't even walk on the road. For they have no business in the countryside since they are not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. And let them stay at home. Well, they don't have a home. It's been burned to the ground. Sixth, I advise that usury be permitted prohibited, rather, to them, and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Seventh, I recommend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle in the hands of every young, strong Jew or Jewess, letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. And uh, Luther's about-face caused extreme bitterness among Jewish people and some of whom have hailed him as a forerunner of the Messiah of a new age. Jews were forced out of Saxony the same year. The writer goes on to say this, and shall be seen in the pages of synagogues would be burned and homes demolished. Books, Jewish books would be destroyed and rabbis killed. There will be no safe place in Germany or most of Europe for Jews, rich or poor. All would have their money confiscated by the Third Reich. Work gangs of young men, would provide 12- to 14-hour days of slave labor. Even Martin Luther could not have foreseen the horrible way in which his words would be used. So the, uh, the church doesn't have a very good record when it comes to this whole matter. And I remember when I first heard that information from a Jewish person. I didn't know it. It kind of shocked me. I was wondering if his, his, his thought toward the church was pre- pre- prejudicial, but it wasn't. His thoughts were very accurate. So I think it's incumbent upon the church today that we not only pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we, we, we pray for the salvation of God's people. And, you know, sometimes when we talk to people and we, we confess, you know, that we are Christian, you may get some of this kind of feedback. And it's unfortunate, but it's true because it's happened all the way throughout church history. Verse 16. And again, I think here we have a needed exhortation to the church and Christians of all ages because we don't want to make that same mistake. It's interesting how neo-Nazism has risen up again. When I was a um, in 1989 uh, another pastor from Calvary Chapel, Philly and I were smuggling some stuff into Eastern Europe. And we were a, Visiting a little Pentecostal church in Auschwitz, Poland. The German name for that place is Auschwitz. The Poles have taken the work camp of Auschwitz. Anytime you see a movie of the train going in, um, that's Auschwitz, and the Poles have kept it as a um, museum. And it was, I'll tell you what, it was, it was incredible to just go through there and see the pictures of Jewish people. Uh, piles of spectacles, piles of hair when they were processed and brought in. And they still, there was still ovens there where they had put many of the Jews after they were gassed into the ovens. But I noticed buses coming in. Because we had rented a car in West Germany at the time, and I would notice that the buses coming in from West Germany with West German plates on them. So we asked one of the procurators of the museum, one of the guides there, we said, what, what are these kids doing here from West Germany? He said, Well, the West German government is educating them on the Holocaust. And I'll tell you what, it is an education to see what humanity is capable of. And particularly today as we see anti-Semitism on the rise, even in our own country. One of the other groups that the KKK hates, you know, they're, they're very active today. You don't think they are. You don't think they are. So they've taken a whole other posture below the radar. After blacks is Jews. And I can even remember growing up, in in certain conversations, the little anti-Semitic remarks that would come out, calling them kikes. Or if somebody took advantage of you for money, you were Jewed out of that money. And we were talking about this this morning early, Why do people, why is there such hate and animosity and resentment? And and certainly it exists between people groups, different people groups. And and people ask, why, you know, why, you know, why particularly is the Jewish people targeted? Because Satan gets, now people have reasons for doing it. People have their reasons for doing it. You know, one of the big lies that's always been against the Jewish people uh, is that they're taking over the world. They control all the finances of the world. And they're, they're you know, they're oppressing us. And isn't it interesting, from the Bible perspective, God said the Jew is going to be a, a blessing to the entire world. And they have. You know, when we were doing Genesis a couple months ago, we showed... How many, you know, of the the Jewish people, it's it's a small people group in the world, and how they dominate uh, the Nobel Prizes, and and they dominate uh, fields of medicine and science and so forth, and that's because God has blessed them and God has favored them, and even in their being scattered, they've been a blessing to the world. How many Jewish doctors and scientists have come up with incredible inventions that have been a blessing to mankind? But oh, how, because Satan hates God, he hates God's people. And that's always what's behind it. That's what's behind any hatred. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy. The root is holy, so are the branches. And again, it's the, that root that is given Gentile, provided for us Gentile uh, salvation. And you know something? It doesn't mean everything Jewish, the Jewish nation does or a Jewish person does is right. We're not saying that. But it's important that you and I, we have a support that's related to their spiritual restoration. That's why we pray for them. That's why we even go to Israel. And just even, even of late, some of the, some of the, some of the uh, different inventions, scientific stuff and technology that has come out of Israel, it's incredible. God said through, to Abraham, through you I'm going to bless all the families. But the greatest blessing, you know what, is the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And if some of the branches were broken off, uh, natural branches he's speaking about here, you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. And with them became a partaker of the, f- the f- root and the fatness of the olive tree. So again, natural branches were pruned off or cut out. And here we, wild branches, were, pr- were sort of grafted in. You ever see, you know, when a tree is grafted? Uh, it's interesting how sometimes you, there's certain fruit trees, that you, you, uh, like apple trees, where you can get different kinds of apples off the same tree. They've grafted in, uh, you, know, you know, different parts of other trees uh, where the, the tree is able to produce the different varieties of, of, of apples or different varieties of fruit. And again, what he's basically saying is, uh, you know, our spiritual life, it flows through the Jewish tree. We need to respect that. We need to respect that. Isn't it interesting? We all stand on the shoulders of somebody else, don't we? Think Think, think about... Thomas Edison. God blessed him with the development of the light bulb and electricity and all the crazy inventions he came up with, but we don't think about that. So that's why it's important. You know, the Bible says, "Remember where you came from. Remember your humble beginnings. Remember the pit from which you were dug." We need to we need to keep that in mind. And what Paul is simply telling us here: we have come. The, the, the spiritual blessings that have come to us have flowed through a Jewish tree. Oh, be careful. We, that, that's what the church has done. They've bit the hand that feeds them. It's just like a child. A child grows up in a home and he's blessed. And he goes off hating his parents. <laughs> it's insane, isn't it? It's crazy. But it's so human, it's so much like human nature. we need to remember where we came from you know one of the big problems of god's people in the old testament they forgot their god they forgot their god they began to go, they began to go you're so wonderful if you go out there and you talk to some unbeliever about what God's given him? He'll rise up like this. What do you mean? I worked hard for that. that, that's, that that's that human pride, that, that independence from God. <laughs> it's like Paul said our life, our breath, and our very being come from him. He gave us the ability to hold a job or to create a business. how faithful he is, how kind he is, how good he is. He said, again, here's the the warning. Do not boast against the branches. And that's clearly happened. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Boasting basically elevates self over somebody else. See, at the root of replacement theology is basically, huh, we're better than them. It's a judgment. We, we shouldn't make those judgments. You know, Paul tells us over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, 4, and 5, he says, But with me is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. In other words, he's not overly, yes, he examined himself, but he wasn't overly sensu- you know, uh, censorious and um, you know, judge, judging himself to a, in a morbid kind of way. For I do not know anything against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, and then each one will have their praise of God. And so, again, this... this Replacement theology is, you know, we're better than them. We're different than them. Um, It's it's judging people. It's based on pride. And here Paul's warning us against that very thing. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. So do not be haughty but fear. Oh, the fear of the Lord. We need to have that, don't we? Fear of the Lord is knowledge. Fear of the Lord is wisdom. Fear of the Lord is understanding. Fear of the Lord is, you know, strength and long life, all these things. And again, fear of the Lord is simply, you know, it's a healthy respect for our God and for his truth, what he has spoken to us. He says, you stand by faith. And remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten, twelve, we need to take heed to ourselves. You know, thinking we, you know, thinking that we stand by ourselves, uh, we stand by the grace of God. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So again, pride is very, very dangerous, you know, for a Christian. You know, sometimes I've seen some folks, you know, they believe that they're so secure in their salvation that they go off and they live in a sinful way. And, and I think they're wrong, the wrongly thinking that, you know, because, you know, I have God now, I can go do what I want to do. You can't. We've been bought with a price. We belong to him. Amen? <laughs> we need to have him lead us, direct us, and guide us. To sum up this section, first and foremost, Elijah, he focused on their failure. That's what the early church did. They focused on the failure of the Jews. We need to focus on his faithfulness. Okay? That's that's where our focus needs to be. You ever sometimes see somebody that maybe made a profession for Christ and then they're they're living for years like the devil? You think, well, God's done with them, I guess. Well, you might be surprised. Focus on his faithfulness. God is faithful even when we are not. The second thing that we see here in this this section here is the church is warned because, you know, at times we become so self-focused. And that's why God calls us what? To go ye into all the world. One of the most freeing things for us is serving others. Serving others in the name of Jesus. We're serving others because why? We're serving him. The, the the more we live for ourselves, a myopic kind of life, we're miserable. We're judgmental. We're cranky and crabby. Maybe none of you are, but I find it happens to me. And the third thing that we see here is just as grace has opened up a place for you and me, that same grace is going to forgive erring Israel. Amen. That's why you know what. Um, We want to be grace people. We want to be graceful. Gracious and kind. And you know, one of the things I thought about this here is, you know what? When I was thinking about the early church and how they handled the Jewish people, Jude said this to us. He said, Beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. Because, you know, Paul said over in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have faith that can remove a mountain, but if you don't have love, you're nothing you got no ministry. We need to have and be motivated. That's why Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. It motivates me. It compels me, and it moves me. In closing, I want to pray for you. Because I think, I know I find myself continually challenged in the matter of staying in love with God. And I want to pray for us this morning and for anyone who feels they need to just, they need that new fresh measure of the love of God in their life. And if you feel that, you sense that this morning, I want you to stand. I want to pray for you. Father, we praise you. Lord, we thank you for the love of Christ. Lord, your love is... Lord, your love put you on a cross. Your love allowed men and humanity to murder you. And Lord, in our humanity, we so appreciate love of that magnitude. And yet, on the other hand, Lord, we know that we don't possess that kind of love to the degree that we need it. And so I pray for these that are standing. I pray for us. That Lord, you would Lord, like Romans 5 says, pour forth, shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. That we could love people. Lord, when we think about Lord, you Sermon on the Mount, Lord, you said, love our enemies. Lord, there are many people today that have just a, such an undying hatred. Hatred for Muslims because of what they do. Hatred toward maybe a person or a people group because somebody from that people group did something to me. Lord, I pray that your love would fill our hearts. Lord, fill our hearts in such a way it would drive out resentment. Lord, any bitterness. Lord, all hatred. Lord, any bigotry, anything, Lord, that would rise up and motivate us. We want and we need, Lord, your precious love. We can't do it on our own, so I pray Lord, that you would do that, shed abroad, pour forth, I pray, in a fresh way. Your life, your spirit, your love in us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.